Water, water everywhere, including on Mars, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Think about it. If there was flowing water on the surface of the red planet for up to a billion more years than suspected, that's a billion more years for life to get a foothold and thrive. A newly published paper by Ellen Leesk and Bethany Elman presents good evidence for this extension. Bethany will also give us an update on her Lunar Trailblazer mission. Who knew? You like arithmetic. That's what we heard from many listeners who entered Math Maven Bruce Betts' contest. The Planetary Society's chief scientist has another number problem for you in this week's What's Up. Call it a Martian flower. It's not, of course. And that weird formation curiosity is found on Mars isn't unique either, but it sure is striking. You can see it in the March 4th edition of our newsletter, The Downlink. The rover grabbed the image on February 25th, which was the 3,397th Sol, or Martian day, of its mission. And that's worthy of an entire bouquet, don't you think? Wars have terrible consequences, even for space missions. ESA, the European Space Agency, has now confirmed that the ExoMars mission is, quote, very unlikely to launch during this year's window. The agency is looking at its options. As Casey Dreyer points out in the March Space Policy edition of Planetary Radio, ExoMars was also intended to demonstrate ESA's ability to build and operate the rover that Perseverance will transfer its precious Martian samples to. Nine billion light-years away, and therefore nine billion years in the past, two supermassive black holes are in a dance of death. A new study finds that they may smash into each other in about 10,000 years, the proverbial blink of an eye in cosmic time. This and other stories await you at planetary.org downlink. Full disclosure, Bethany Ullman is president of the Planetary Society's Board of Directors. I'm not sure how she finds the time. Bethany is a full professor of planetary science at Caltech, the California Institute of Technology. That's where she is also associate director of the Keck Institute for Space Studies. She teaches. She conducts research on objects all over the solar system, including our own world. And she looks forward to the launch of the Lunar Trailblazer, a small probe that will use two powerful instruments to identify and measure water on the moon. On December 27th, she and lead author Ellen Leesk published a paper titled Evidence for Deposition of Chloride on Mars from Small-Volume Surface Water Events into the Late Hesperian, Early Amazonian. If they are right, it means water was rolling around the Martian surface for up to a billion extra years. I invited Bethany back to Planetary Radio to tell us more. Bethany, welcome back to Planetary Radio. Congratulations on this latest paper, at least the latest one that I've seen that you are connected with. You are a co-author with Ellen Leesk, your former PhD student. I'm sorry to say that she was unable to, to join us for this conversation today, but I sure look forward to talking to you about the possibility, apparently the strong possibility, that there was water running around on the surface of Mars for a lot more years than was uh, maybe thought. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be back. 
while some of the science, I admit, was beyond me, <laughs> the paper reads like a great detective story. And the, the illustrations are absolutely fascinating. How you used, in large part, these orbital spacecraft, uh, the data that was returned by them, the images, to do a lot of this work. I really recommend that people take a look at it. And we'll put that link and other relevant links up on this week's uh, show page. Tell us about these deposits, which I guess we've known about for a while. Are we really talking about good old table salt? <laughs> we are probably talking about large deposits of good old table salt on Mars. So the subject of our paper was is uh, these former salt lakes that were discovered in 2008 by the Mars Odyssey spacecraft Themis instrument. And Dr. Mickey Osterloo, back when she was a graduate student, actually, discovered these chloride deposits. So chloride is NaCl, just like the table salt you might be uh, staring at if you're listening to this over breakfast or dinner. <laughs> and these have been a puzzle since they were first discovered. And that's for a few reasons. They occur in irregular deposits. They're, they're not well organized in layers. They're kind of in irregular depressions scattered across the surface of the southern highlands of Mars. They, though, usually aren't in the deepest depressions. They're usually in sort of shallow depressions. And so, so this is a, has always been a bit of a head scratcher. I love that in the very first line of the abstract for the paper, it describes these deposits as enigmatic. That seems to be backed by, by what you just said. Enigmatic. And I mean, they're enigmatic because of how they occur in, in depressions, in, in kind of holes in the ground, you know, colloquially, but not the deepest holes. And also they're enigmatic because their, their spectroscopic signature is not as pronounced as other minerals. They were actually discovered in the, the thermal infrared themis data by virtue of their lack of a spectral signature. They, they, they imparted some distinctive uh, properties that were messing up the correction algorithm that was typically employed because they were unusual. But they don't have, for example, we usually, I'm a, I, I'm a spectroscopist. I love looking at light as a function of wavelength and using absorptions, fingerprints to, to identify minerals. But these chlorides don't actually have distinctive fingerprints. They're, it's more like lack of a fingerprint, but very distinctive color properties and very distinctive emission properties in, in the thermal data. So, so, so these, are, these are funny enigmatic deposits. Would we find anywhere on Earth that has something similar to these? So great question. Yeah. So we get these kind of deposits on Earth where typically large, but it doesn't have to be large, where bodies of water evaporate, leaving behind salt deposits. So some of the places, um, if any of your listeners have been to Death Valley, Hands some, yeah, hands up, hands up. Yeah, if any, if anyone has been to Death Valley or some of the other um, Great Salt Lake, perhaps uh, in, in Utah, um, these areas where there's lots of water coming in and lots of evaporation are areas where we get these huge salt deposits. There are also smaller areas on Earth where we get them, and we think that this is actually the better analogy for Mars. One other place that we get them is Antarctica. There's a, a famous lake in Antarctica, Don Juan Pond, that's one of the saltiest bodies of water on Earth. And it's salty because it's fed by seasonal runoff from glaciers that 
picks up salts and other materials from the surrounding rocks before it flows into this little valley at the end of the glacier, leading to this very salt-rich chloride pond. And there's actually another smaller one just uphill, uphill from it. And we think this chain of salty lakes in Antarctica is probably the best analog for what we're seeing in these chloride deposits on Mars. I'm also thinking of a, a salty area that I'm unfortunately too familiar with, and that's our own Salton Sea oh, yes. in Southern California, which has no outlet, but I, I, I believe I've read that it's incredibly saline because it has all this stuff running into it that the water then evaporates, right? That's right. That's right. It's that concentration of, of water flowing in and then the water leaves via evaporation, but the salts don't leave. They're left behind as a, as a sort of crust on the surface. And that was actually one of the other things that, that Ellen sleuthed as she was doing this for her PhD. She realized that because since the discovery in 2008, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter had continued to acquire data the later orbiter, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, with its high-rise camera and its context imager, CTX camera, had continued to acquire color high-rise, enough imagery to make stereo pairs. So she was able to sleuth out exactly how thick the chlorides were um, mm. in many of these deposits. And actually, the, they're pretty thin, you know, like maybe a meter or two at most. They seem to be kind of like crusts, just like you'd sort of get a, a salt crust, but on a slightly larger scale. You know, the, the upper, you, know, you can't see this on the radio. I'm making my, you know, motions with my hands that show the upper foot or two uh, was is relatively salt enriched, but not beneath. You could see little impact craters punching in that pulled, uh -huh. clean, that pulled up clean, typical Martian basaltic soil. Something that's interesting is that if we went down to the lowest part of that, that basin, the lowest part of the low typically doesn't have the chlorides. Where they, where they are is typically near the highs, but in the depressions that are closest to the highs. So if we're going downslope from somewhere high, some, some set of hills, and we hit the first set of depressions, they would probably have chloride. If we hit the second set of depressions, they would have chloride. By the time we get to the bottom, they would no longer have chloride. Hmm. And so we think these perch deposits came to be because the source of the water was in the hills, that it was surface water running off, collecting salt from the upper few meters of soil, and then depositing it in this sort of chain of lakes. So this was a huge find of Ellen's, and it was just through very careful detective work of really paying attention to where these were. They were, they were downstream from the hills. I'm wondering, though, I'm curious about what took it the next step. You know, what happened to make you and Ellen begin to think that these deposits were worthy of even more investigation, that they might be able to tell us some surprising things about Mars? Yeah. So one of the questions on Mars has always been, OK, so we know there's water on Mars. That has been the great finding of, you know, the last 30 years of Mars exploration. But the real question is, what kinds of environments were they? How long did they last? Where did they go? Could there have been life in these environments? So to kind of take it to the next step. So now we know that flowing downhill was surface water at some point in time making these little streams and probably more than once because salt, to concentrate it, you kind of want to do this over and over again. Fill, evaporate, fill, evaporate. Then you get some like serious salt. So we knew that there were these trickles of water. So then the next question that you, you ask as a scientist is, well, how long ago? And like, how long did this last? So how long ago? So that was where we took the investigation next. 
time is tricky on another planet. On Earth, you take the sample into the lab and you do isotope dating. On a planet, what you do is you count craters. If you imagine a surface over time, the older it is, the more craters it has. Why? Because it's been sitting there for longer, being impacted into uh, by the flux of meteorites. So more craters is older. So what we can do is, you know, making some extrapolations from the moon that are that are tricky, <laughs> but we can come up with an estimate for age by counting the number of craters on a surface. And in this case, what we want to do is we actually want to count the number of craters that are under the chlorides. So the chloride deposits were not big enough to have enough area on them that we could confidently get good statistics for the, for the chlorides. But we could count what was underneath them because the chlorides have to be younger than the stuff underneath them, right? We could get this oldest bound on the age. But what was very surprising was that for some of the deposits that we were able to do this on, the answer was about a billion years younger than most of the Martian lakes. So the answer was um, that some of these were on terrains that were 2 billion years old. Now, that's still a long time ago, but that's almost half a billion to a billion years uh, later than the materials that are being explored by curiosity and perseverance in the ancient Martian lakes right now. So what that says is that the duration of water flowing on the surface of Mars lasted longer than we had previously kind of thought. If we're talking about roughly an additional billion years of flowing water on the surface of Mars, isn't that also another billion years for other interesting things that we think might happen when there's liquid water and and energy? That's right. That's another billion years that there was potentially a habitable environment on Mars, or at least intermittently so. I mean, as we look around on Earth, Don Juan Pond in Antarctica, this incredibly salty pond in this mean annual temperature well below freezing environment is habited happily with a number of microorganisms as well as kind of larger microbial mat structures that grow from the surface. So, you know, I think as we you know think about writ large, did Mars have life? Does it host life? Really, this question of how long did the watery environments last? How did they come and go is, is so critical. You know, I think it's an important climate piece of the puzzle as well, because, you know, one of the biggest challenges in Mars science that has endured for decades is why is Mars able to host liquid water at all? Mm. Um, it gets 40% of the amount of sunlight of, of Earth. Its mean annual temperature is below freezing. There is some like mechanism of production of greenhouse gases or the way that clouds work on Mars that we actually don't fully understand why why could Mars sustain liquid water it, on its surface? It clearly did. Lakes like Jezero Lake and Gale Lake and these chloride ponds, we still haven't gotten all the pieces yet. And that's why we need to keep exploring. We have never visited anything like these chloride ponds on Mars. They're a type of landing site that has so far been unexplored by, by rovers. I'm so glad that you you brought up Curiosity and Perseverance, now their locations, Gale and Jezero, which apparently these are quite different from. Would you wish that we could send another Perseverance up there to one of these salt deposits someday and, and do some collecting? I think one of the amazing things from our orbital reconnaissance of Mars is that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of sites to explore that record records of habitable environments, archives where we would search for life. You realize how precious a rover is <laughs> when you when you study the entire surface of the planet, as I do. And 
you see all of these interesting locations that we're discovering. I mean, ancient salty lakes in a chain of in a, a ch ancient chains of lakes. We've not been there. We've not been to the um, the deposits at the bottom of Valles Marineris that look like they were formed by outflow channels and evaporating waters. We've never been to the poles of Mars. There are so many mysteries that remain at the surface. And as a geologist, I just think of all of the work over the last hundred years, unraveling the history of life on Earth. Dinosaurs, giant impacts, ancient ocean fossil drilling creatures. We only know this because we've scoured the globe and looked at the rocks. And that's that's where we are in Mars exploration. We're just at the beginning of scouring the Martian globe and looking at the rocks to really be able to read that history and answer those questions that we can't answer right now. Enigmatic salt deposits on a still extremely enigmatic world. Uh, it just it just beckons. It just it, it, we, <laughs> there's so much more for us to do. More to explore. Yeah, give us an update on your orbiter, Lunar Trailblazer. What what's the status? Well, pivoting planetary bodies <laughs> to the other one that has been attracting my attention lately. In addition to water on Mars, um, I have been working hard with our team on water on the Moon. So, as Matt mentions, uh, Lunar Trailblazer is a NASA small satellite mission. We're funded by the Planetary Science Division and the Exploration Systems and Science Integration Office that that runs that organizes NASA's lunar program. Lunar Trailblazer is a small satellite to map water on the moon. That is water in ice deposits in the permanently shadowed regions. Where's the ice? How much is there? How much is at the surface? And also the water, the sort of enigmatic H2O, OH that we see enriched in certain sunlit, warm parts of the moon that's maybe part of the rock, maybe comes from the solar wind, maybe it's just H2O molecules bouncing around as a function of temperature. So Lunar Trailblazer um, is in the process of being built. The PowerPoint charts that we've had for two years are now turning into hardware, and the hardware looks like the PowerPoint charts, which is really amazing <laughs> to see uh, what we've worked on so long uh, come together. Our, uh, both of our instrument teams are in the middle of instrument integration and tests, so putting hardware together. We have a, um, a thermal vacuum chamber test in uh, about two and a half weeks for the, uh, the fully assembled spectrometer of our, our, of our um, imaging spectrometer instrument the High Resolution Volatiles and Minerals Moon Mapper, HVM Cubed. And so it is really exciting to see this all come together and will be our spacecraft integration and test starts in the early part of the summer and we will be done by uh, by November. So we will have a spacecraft uh, ready, to, ready to launch by the end of the calendar year. So getting to the moon and getting the maps of water there is the next thing. Thank you, Bethany, for this conversation, for all this great work that is underway, and best of continued success with it. Thanks also for finding time to uh, serve as president of the uh, Planetary Society. Always a pleasure. Keep exploring, and I'm happy to help enable um, everyone who's listening to this show to, to keep exploring. That's Bethany Elman, Professor of Planetary Science, also the Associate Director of Caltech's Keck Institute for Space Studies, and the principal investigator for that upcoming exploration of our own big satellite, the Lunar Trailblazer. Thank you, Matt. Thirsty for more Martian water? My extended conversation with Bethany is in this week's podcast at planetary.org slash radio and from all the usual podcast providers. What about water on other worlds? My colleague Ray Pauletta 
tells us about the ocean worlds of our solar system in the online show. I'll be right back with Bruce and what's up here on Planetary Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. It is time again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. So we've got the chief scientist of the Planetary Society here. That's Bruce Betts. Welcome. I, I have a fun little opening uh, message for you from a listener. Oh, fun. It's sweet, actually, uh, and, and very rewarding. Melanie Podbielski from Edinburgh, Scotland. Edinburgh. Wrote to us. She says, hi, Matt and Bruce. Thanks, as ever, for your show. Planetary Radio has introduced me to so many fascinating scientists and topics. I just returned to university to study planetary science, and you and your show were not insignificant in that choice. We're not insignificant. Yay! <laughs> it's always good to know. No, that's, that's very nice. Yes, congratulations. Best of luck to you in your studies. What's up? Well, it's hard to compete with that, but... But I'll try in the pre-dawn sky. Pre-dawn is where it's happening over there in the east. Check out super bright Venus. And it is near much dimmer reddish Mars. And to the lower left, we've got Saturn looking yellowish and coming up higher. They're getting closer and closer as we move towards the end of March. Evening sky, Orion, beautiful in the south. And you can find all sorts of other stuff. So enjoy. We move on to this week in space history. 1781, Matt, it was a big year. William Herschel discovered Uranus. Seems significant. I'd say so. There aren't too many people who can say that. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll move forward a lot. In 2006, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter arrived at Mars into orbit to do reconnaissance. And boy, has it done that. Still there, still doing great stuff. Hey, before you go on to Random Space Fact, I got another listener message for you. This one comes from Michael Lloyd in Texas. He says, Matt, Bruce, I love everything you do. I love passing along your Random Space Facts to my kids. It makes me smile and feel smart. When out of the blue, they ask, Daddy, Random Space Fact, please? <laughs> That's so cool. Isn't that? I knew you'd like that. I, I do. That makes me very happy. Well, here's another one, because we're going on to Random Space Fact. <laughs> so we're talking escape velocity now, the uh, velocity required in ignoring atmosphere and such to, to escape the gravity of an object, crudely stated. And here's my little factoid, or double factoid. The escape velocity for Jupiter... 
from the top of the atmosphere, the one bar level, is about five times that from the surface of the Earth. And Earth's escape velocity is about five times that of the surface of the moon. Uh, that's unique. We haven't uh, done one about escape velocity before, I don't think. Well, I'm glad you like escape velocity because I liked it a lot this week. We'll come back to that. But let's move on to the trivia question that I asked you to do some Messier math, referring to the Messier objects, the catalog of objects. I asked you to do the following problem. The number of objects published in Charles Messier's 1781 catalog times the Messier number of the Triffid Nebula minus the Messier number of the Starfish Cluster. And how do we do and what do we get? We got a huge response and a lot of first timers. Our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas, here is the response he gave us. Okay, class, please listen and your math will messier. Start with 103 and that's our catalog today. Multiply by Triffid, that is 20 in our skies, minusing the starfish gives the current year. Surprise! <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Wow, nice way to turn that into a poem. Impressive. 2022, right? 2022 is the answer. Oh, that is the current year, isn't it? Huh. <laughs> what a coincidence. Glad to bring you up to date there, Chief Scientist. A uh, lot of people came up with 2162 because they went with the current Messier catalog total of 110 objects rather than what you had specified, the 1781 original. You expected that, didn't you? I did. Well, yeah, I mean, there are a number of objects in the Messier catalog. You have to be a, a little more precise, and the, the other ones get kind of fuzzy. And so, yes, I, that's why I specified in a seemingly overly detailed way the 1781 catalog, which is a, a classic. I've got a first edition signed by Messier. No, I I don't. <laughs> you wish. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, if you were one of those who came up with 2162, well, you can get some solace from the fact that it, you got the math right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> here is our winner, and he is a first-time winner, Steve Sheridan, who comes from, well, it's a beach town in California where I used to actually hang out when I was a kid. That's where our mom would drop us off to go to the beach. I won't say which town. He added, I very much appreciate what Matt, Bruce, and the entire Planetary Society do for the space community. Peraspera ad astra. You said it, Steve, and we are going to send you a Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid for your trouble. Thanks for entering. Uh, we're ready for another one of these. A little more math because people want it. Not as, not as much. Approximately. What is the ratio of the surface escape velocity from Mars compared to the surface escape velocity from Earth? Their ratio. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Okay, you uh, mathematicians or uh, arithmeticians, you have this time until the 16th, March 16 at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And uh, we have another Chop Shop store prize for you. This week, it is a terrific T-shirt. I'm looking at it right now. Very cool at ChopShopStore.com. It's a Better Know an Asteroid T-shirt. He has them for uh, women and men. It says that right on the shirt and around a little asteroid that looks an awful lot like Bennu is Osiris Rex coming in for the kill. 
You like that too. <laughs> well, I was a little disturbed by it, frankly, but okay. <laughs> anyway, like I said, you got till the 16th. We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about your favorite pattern of bark. Tree bark, dog bark, take your pick. Thank you, and good night. He's Bruce Betts. He's never barking up the wrong tree. Uh, he's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society who joins us every week here on What's Up. <laughs> Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who find solace in wonders of the universe. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers this week. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.